Hey, this is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and we are about to dive into week two of our series in the book of Revelation. As we mentioned last week, this is an overview. This is going to be a 12-week series, so not a super in-depth verse-by-verse look at the book, but a, a, a survey of the major themes, theology, purpose, uh, how we can read and understand Revelation correctly, or as correct as we can for us today in our time. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to week number one, I want to encourage you to pause here, go back, listen to last week. It'll give you some important context and information as we dive into this book today. Also, I just want to note, uh, stick with us. At the end of this, I have a few extra thoughts to add that I didn't fit into the message when I was preaching this live at our church. We're filming this, uh, not filming it, recording it in the, uh, what is it? Oh, in May, 2022. And so there's so much going on in our world right now to be aware of that make this book Uh, this letter written by John more applicable than ever. So uh, stay tuned for after this, I have a few additional thoughts. Having said that, let's head into week number two. Before we roll into things, if you weren't here last week or the last few weeks, as we uh, just work through the book of Revelation, we are doing a survey of the book of Revelation. So this is gonna be 12 weeks that we spend just covering the major themes and ideas, the theology of the book of Revelation. It's not a verse-by-verse sort of super in-depth inductive study. But to help us, as we're working through this, we've got a whole bunch of these scripture journals. So this is just the book of Revelation itself here. Uh, For this series, we're using the ESV version, English Standard Version. And the point of these is that you actually bring them with you. So I won't ask you this week how many forgot them, but the point of these is that you bring it with you. On the left page, the left side is the scripture or is scripture. On the right side is just blank. And so you can see even here the notes I've made, uh, some of them this week uh, as I've been processing through. And so this is just... um, to activate you a little bit in walking through this book. So we had run out last week, but we have more this weekend. So here's what we'll do. Um, You can pay for them after the service. I think they're 10 bucks a book. Uh, We'll trust you with that. But if anybody here would like one now so that you can follow along with us, just raise your hand and we have some people that'll come and pass them out to you. So just throw your hand up really high. Yeah, we got hot dogs, uh, chips, no beer this morning. Um, That's still on order. I'm just kidding. Um, It's just like a Jays game, except better. All right. So thank you. Appreciate that. You know, I never had so many comments on my pants as I have today. I wasn't sure how to take some of them. As you're driving by and you're like, nice pants, Andrew. I'm not sure if that's like, nice pants, Andrew, or if that's like, hey, those are nice pants. 
But luckily I'm secure enough in my personhood, my manhood, that I'm okay with it. I could see Devin wearing these, but... Well, we have a similar physique, I think, maybe. I'm just joking. <laughs> Devin works out a lot more than I do. Um, all right, I don't know where I was going with that, but that's okay. Let's open our Bibles. Let's just get back on track here, Andrew. All right, so you can open your scripture journal here. Um, today we're finishing off the first chapter, and then from this point on, it'll be roughly two chapters per week that we'll be covering one of the other things we're doing as a part of this series is uh, Revelation is unique uh, as a book in that it's the only book that says those who read it aloud will be blessed. We learned that earlier in chapter one. And so part of what we're going to do here that's a little bit different than what we would normally do is we're gonna be reading through it each week. So those two chapters, we will read all together. Uh, we'll have different people reading up here on the stage. And so if you're here through the course of the whole series, you'll have read uh, and listened to the whole book of Revelation by the end of the 12 weeks. And that's really exciting um, to me. I'm excited for that. And so I haven't decided yet if we're going to ask you to stand um, for those longer readings, we'll see. Um, Brenda's saying no, so I guess the answer is no to that. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning. All right. Uh, you know what? Today, because we hadn't talked about that, I'm going to get you to stand, and we have a shorter reading today. <laughs> I'm not being defiant. I'm just saying today it's shorter. <laughs> so we're starting in uh, on... On uh, page eight, if you're reading in the scripture journal, but Revelation 1, verse 8 is where I'll start, and I will read to the end of this chapter. I am the Alpha in the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long white robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of mighty waters." many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death 
and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. You can be seated. So like I mentioned last week, um, our posture in approaching this study of Revelation is, is one of humility. There are wildly different interpretations of this book, wildly different uh, explanations of, of what's written in it, and our heart is not to be antagonistic or to be arrogant or proud in our conclusions that we're coming to. Um, we actually want to just come back to God's word and, and gently just say, God, would you allow us to come back and, and actually receive from your word directly? There are a gazillion books written about the book of Revelation. There are tons of uh, books written on prophecy and on how to interpret Revelation in light of world events and current events and the headlines of our day. I'm just saying and inviting you and I in humility to lay those aside for right now. A lot of those are written by godly men and women, and I'm not disparaging them, but what we want to do is come back to the book of Revelation itself and understand what it is meaning to say. As I mentioned last week, a part of that is understanding that Revelation was written to real people in the first century. It was written to real people that were living real lives in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And this book would have had significance and meaning for those people. So one of the first things I just want to gently draw to your attention is that revelation cannot mean less to us or something entirely different to us than it meant to them in the first century. One of the things that I want to just walk with us through and gently challenge is the idea that Revelation is entirely a book written about events to take place and, and you need to be a, a systematic code breaker of the headlines of our day to understand the book of Revelation. In fact, the Christian church for really thousands of years has been attempting to do that. It's not just current day Christian leaders who are using headlines to try and interpret Revelation. That was happening in the centuries after John wrote it. And the problem with that is that it's never worked out. <laughs> We've seen many books written and then revised and then revised again and then revised again. And so our heart in this is not to interpret Revelation in light of the headlines we read today, but to understand, God, what was your intention for those first hearers of this? When it would have gone to the churches just like this, it would have been read aloud just like we did. And the Holy Spirit had a significance and a meaning for those people hearing it 2,000 years ago. And I believe he still has a significance and meaning for us today. So Revelation, the Greek word, as we've said, is apocalypse. 
Apocalypse literally just means unveiling or uncovering. Apocalypse is not apocalypse now, the movie. It doesn't mean doom and gloom and dread. Apocalypse just means a pulling back of the curtain. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, authored by him and about him. What, uh, in essence, Jesus is saying to John through this is things aren't always like they seem. This book is meant to give us God's perspective. You can write this in your little note side. This apocalypse, this pulling back, whether it was for the people that John wrote it to that he knew and loved in these seven churches, or if it's for us today, this apocalypse, this pulling back, gives us God's perspective and answers two fundamental questions. All right, and these are gonna be found through the whole book. This is kind of a a large meta-narrative of the book. These two questions, this apocalypse, this pulling back answers. Number one, who is really Lord? And number two, who has the real power? This book, this whole book is going to expose those two questions. Who is really Lord and who really has power? We also uncovered last week the reality that this book is a pastoral letter. It's actually the longest letter in the Bible. It's a prophetic letter written to the church to give the church a counter image of reality. This was a prophetic pastoral letter written to the church to give them a counter image of what's really real, what's beyond what we see right in front of us. In chapter one, we're introduced to the first three major themes of this book. Number one, first theme we'll uncover in chapter one is God sits on the throne of the universe. This is the first and most important principle of this whole book. God is the one who sits on the throne of the universe, the universe he created and the universe he will redeem. Who God is and what it looks like to worship him and surrender to him are the issues at the heart of Revelation. So the first major theme that we're going to unpack in chapter one is there is a God, he created everything we can see and everything we can't see, and he sits on the throne. That's the first major theme of Revelation chapter one. The second theme of Revelation one is Jesus, the lamb who was slain, whose death and resurrection make God's kingdom a reality on the earth now, we'll see in chapters four and five, Jesus is also seen as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Later on in the book, we'll see Jesus is the rider on the white horse who destroys sin. Jesus is the one who destroys sin, death and the power of Satan and his kingdom of darkness. As we see already in chapter one, Revelation is a book about following Jesus and living like him. 
in his approach to the spiritual and natural world. It's about learning to live like and suffer like Jesus himself did. The third major theme of Revelation is look and listen, Revelation 1. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to look to him. And not only hearing him, but listening to him. This is what we're going to unpack a little bit more today. We can walk through unsettling and disorienting circumstances if our attention is on Jesus. And this is what the the first chapter of Revelation is, is setting the table for us to establish the reality that God is on the throne, that Jesus has conquered death, that he holds all things in his hand. And that if we look to him, if we listen to him and follow him, we can overcome everything that life brings to us. If we look to him and listen to him, we can walk through the most unsettling, discouraging, confusing, volatile, frustrating, and you name it. Just we can, we can walk through it all if we look to him and listen to him. We're going to unpack that a little bit more. I want to leave you, you can jot a few of these down, some key questions to ask of Revelation 1. All right? We've sort of covered this. Who is God? We see through Revelation 1 that he addresses himself as the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He addresses himself as the beginning and the end and the first and the last. All of human history, every kingdom, every ruler, every nation, every Caesar, every president and prime minister and every general and governor and everyone in human history is enveloped by God. He's the beginning and the end and everything in the middle. Another key question that we're going to be confronted with is who is Jesus? Jesus actually gives himself these attributes of God here. Jesus, in this revelation, this apocalypse to John, is claiming to be God. Not just a wise prophet, not just a good teacher. He's claiming the essence of God himself. We're going to look at and discover where Jesus is. We've already gotten a hint. He's in the middle. He's on the throne. He's in the midst of everything. We're going to need to ask, where are we looking? Where is your attention fixed right now? Where is your, uh, where is your life directed? What are you listening to? And the last question there is, what is driving fear and anxiety and frustration in your life? These are the questions that Revelation 1 invites us to ask. I just want to jump back. I'm not going to say anything or or things in depth about every verse, but there's a few that I want to unpack. Verse eight, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. These are written in the original Greek. They're written in the present tense. What this is saying more than anything is that God's present existence 
the reality that God is present and here now and involved. He's not aloof. He's not uh, like distracted. He's not kind of hanging out somewhere else and just letting the world spin on its own. God is present and involved and active in our world. It's written in the present tense, not the future. When it says, um, who was and is to come. It's not talking just about some future event. That, that word in the Greek behind who is to come means he is in the act of presently coming. It's not he's going to start coming some other time. He's in the act of establishing his kingdom. He's in the act of making his presence on the earth known, increasing the kingdom of God on the earth. He's presently coming. He's not waiting around somewhere to see how things pan out and work out in your life and on the earth. He's in the act of coming now. He is presently coming. He's not disconnected or distant from what you and I are experiencing. Another way to think of that is that he is pressing in on the world even now. God is pressing in on the world even now. He ends verse eight with this description of himself as the almighty. That description God gives himself seven other times or six other times in Revelation. What that is, uh, what God is leaning into there is that he has unrivaled power over all things, including history. When he expresses himself as the Almighty, he's saying, I have unrivaled, uncontested power over everything and even over history itself. The Greek word there is actually not so much God's abstract omnipotence, that he just is powerful, well, that's true, that he has all power. That's not what John is actually leaning into with. It's not just this uh, sort of doctrinal assertion that God is omnipotent and he's all powerful. What, what John is getting at and what God is getting at through John is that he is not just powerful, but that he actually has control over all things. He exerts his authority and his influence and his control over all things. I heard one scholar say it sort of like this, that God is in control over all things, but he doesn't control your life. That he has power and authority over all things. He has absolute power over all things. All things in our present he had absolute authority and power over Domitian, the ruler of Rome at the time John wrote this. He's had absolute authority and power through every empire and kingdom and ruler and leader on the earth. And he has absolute uncontested authority and power today. There is nothing going on on this world in this time that God does not have authority over. Verse 10. Let's just move on. I'll, I'll read verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom of 
the, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos. So John had been exiled to a work island. He was a political prisoner of Rome. John says that he was there on account of the word of God. He was there because he was walking, following the leadership of Jesus. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I wanna just make a few observations. What John, I think, is expressing here, number one, is that entering into the presence of God takes intention on our part. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In the midst of this horrible, painful suffering that he was enduring, this trial that he was enduring, on this awful rock of an island called Patmos, John decided to be intentional about stewarding the presence of God. And what he discovered was even on that rock, in exile, on that island, separated, isolated, alone, confused, and afraid for his friends, even in that place, what he recognized by intentionally stewarding the presence of God was that that place was a temple of the presence of God. Even that place of suffering, even that place of pain, even that difficult circumstance is a place where the Spirit of God is found if you are willing to pursue His presence in the middle of it. And so often in my life, and maybe in yours too, when stuff gets hard, when stuff goes sideways, when we're not experiencing our best life, as we like to say, what we do is we turn off our relationship with God. We start fixating on all of our problems on all of the dysfunction, on all of the pain, and on how we can fix it. We turn our thoughts to ourselves instead of directing them to God. And John learned this invaluable lesson that even on this horrible rock of an island in the midst of pain and suffering and isolation, that that too was a place, a temple for the presence of God. But he was intentional about it. I don't know what you're walking through in your life today, but I, I wanna exhort you just through this, that it's actually in those places of pain and suffering, those wilderness experiences where the presence of God wants to do its deepest, most shaping work in us, but it takes us being intentional to steward that. Every instinct in us is like, I gotta figure this out. I gotta set the course for where I'm going. I've gotta solve all these problems. And God is saying, no, no, no. What you need to do first is attend to me. And when we attend to his presence, we begin to have a new perspective of where we are and what we're experiencing. John chose to seek God in that place of pain and suffering. And at that place of pain and suffering became a sanctuary. Just think about that for a moment. Whatever's going on in your life, the, the hard things that are taking place, the, the things that you're pressed up against, those very places can be a sanctuary of the presence of God if you're willing to steward his presence intentionally. What 
Jesus is showing John here is, John, you may see an island of exile, but things are not always what they seem. You may feel like your marriage is on its last rung and that there's no hope, but things are not always what they seem. You may feel like you've been beat down so many times that there's no more getting up. Things are not always what they seem. The question is, are you willing to steward the presence of God in the place where you are? The unseen reality of the present. Remember, we said apocalyptic literature serves two primary purposes. Number one, it sets our present moment in light of the unseen reality of the present. Okay, so that's what John is seeing. With his eyes, he sees a work island of exile. But Jesus reframes his perspective and gives, gives him the unseen reality of the present. That's the first purpose of apocalyptic literature. The second purpose is to set our present reality in light of the unseen reality of the future. And what Jesus is beginning to establish for John is not only am I present with you now, the end is secure. There's no question marks as we work through each page of your life. There's no question marks. I want to move on just a little bit further down this page here. We're going to hear uh, and see from John two really important words and phrases throughout this whole book. In verse 10, he said, I heard behind me. That, that word for heard is found 32 times in this book of Revelation. So he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Then he goes on to say, I turned and I saw. Those two phrases are found over and over again. I heard and then I saw. What does he hear? He hears a voice. So 1 verse 10, 12, 18 all describe this. I think the first thing that God is trying to establish with John, even in this first chapter of this book of Revelation, is that following Jesus, following Jesus in its most basic form requires us to listen to him. The most basic uh, reality of being discipled by Jesus means we actually need to hear him. We need to listen to him. But hearing is different than listening. I can hear my wife gently exhort me to do many wonderful things in the home. I can hear her but whether I listen or not is a different story. And this is the contrast that we're going to find in this book of Revelation is that hearing requires listening and listening requires active obedience. It actually means doing the things that God is speaking to you to do, that he's revealing to you. John goes on to say he turned and he saw the voice that was speaking to me. And he saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man, 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. I just want to make a note here. In John's day, the, the sash around the chest was different than the belt around the waist. And the sash around the chest was a symbol of a completed victorious work. It was what a, a general or a king would wear as he rode into enemy territory victorious. He would wear a sash around his chest, which means I have completed the work that I've set out to do. That's what John is seeing in Jesus, someone who has completed everything that needs to be done on the earth. He was wearing a sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I wanna just, uh, this is gonna be a little bit technical, but I wanna bring you through uh, a really important thing and I don't want to get too like schooly here, but it's really important for us to understand that the way John wrote as a Middle Eastern person is different than we write today. And we're going to see um, this as found in this literary form. Maybe you've heard of this before if you're like a huge grammar nerd or something like that. You might have heard of this, but John is using here in his description of Jesus what's called a chiasm. Okay, so a chiasm is a literary form of writing where you organize the information in a different way than we do, okay? So a chiasm is kind of like half of the side of an X here or like, you know, Canadian geese in flight. And you organize information not in a linear way, but in a chiastic way, which means A leads to B, C, and D. D then goes to C, B, and A on the other side. The point of a chiasm is that D is the emphasis. D is the most important part that is being conveyed, not A. In North America, we kind of go through things linearly. So we would work through, in a Western way, this description of Jesus and go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's not how John intended to write this. John does it in a chiastic way. One, two, three, four being the dominant idea, the most stressed of importance, five, six, and seven being reflections of the one, two, and three, okay? So this is what John has going on in this description of Jesus. And this is important because we need to understand from John's perspective where the emphasis was. In this description of Jesus, what is John most trying to convey to us right now? So here's how we should read or should not read this list of Jesus' features. We shouldn't read them as his head, eyes, feet, voice, hands, mouth, and face. Done. So face for us would be like we're going to end with the main point. How we should read this description is chiastically, head, eyes, feet, voice, hand, mouth, face. Eugene Peterson, a scholar and the one who wrote the message paraphrase, actually goes on to say that number one and number seven are connected. 
that John is connecting those. He's intending to say one uh, unified thing with head and face. Meaning Jesus with his head being described as hair with white as wool, meaning he's got the wisdom that you need in life. And his face shining brighter than the sun in scripture, when the face of God is described, many of David's Psalms are translated for us, you know, I was in the presence of the Lord, but that word for presence actually means face and what face signifies. Face signifies peace and rest and joy. And the first thing that John is, I think, wanting us to get is that Jesus possesses the wisdom you need. And when you look at Jesus, when you're directed toward him, not only will you receive the wisdom you need, you will receive the peace and the joy that comes from his face and his presence. What do we do when we're in a crisis situation with somebody? We say, look at me, look at me. And when we in ourselves carry a non-anxious presence. We calm the person we're looking at. When our eyes aren't distraught and and frustrated, when we're not panicking in our face, the people around us can rest. And what John is saying through this and what Jesus is showing him is, I have the wisdom, but I am not anxious right now, John. What you need to do is look at me. Look at my face, John. See, you see You see trouble all around you, John. Your friends are back on the mainland and they're being persecuted by Rome and by the Emperor Domitian. But look at me, John, I am not anxious right now. My face is radiating with the glory of God. And then he moves through to his eyes and his mouth. That's, these are the communication tools of Jesus. Not only does he have the wisdom you need and the peace and the rest you need in him, he actually wants to convey to you who he is and where he's going. And then we see his feet and his hand that holds the seven stars in it. When John is describing his feet as burnished bronze, I believe what he's saying and what Jesus is demonstrating here is my feet are secure. You can put all of your trust in me. I'm anchored and rooted. And his hand that holds these seven stars, yes, they were the seven angels of the church, but in John's day, they thought of the whole universe as the seven planets they could see. Essentially what God is saying is everything on this earth and everything in the heavens are in the palm of my hand. You can trust me with your life. And the last thing, number four, but the most important is John, you need to listen to me. You need to hear and listen to the leadership that I wanna give you in your life. So the question for us today with that, it's the same as it was for John. What in your life is drowning out the voice of God? That's the question we need to ask. If Jesus's voice is like many rushing waters, it carries with it presence, What is competing with the voice of God in your life? Is it culture? Is it worry on a political level? 
Is it suffering or trouble? Is it stuff going on in your marriages? What, what is competing with the voice of Jesus in your life? That's a question we need to ask. And I think what John was getting to the heart of. In essence, I think what Jesus is saying is, John, you and your friends in Asia Minor, you're not listening to me, John. You're not listening. You're, you're being distracted and discouraged and overwhelmed by the chaos that's around me. You're not listening to me, John. And today in our world where things are just turned up, where there's an unsettledness and an, a, a cultural, a global anxiety and people are filled with fear and dread about the future where as soon as we go on our phones and we're scrolling through our TikToks and Instagrams and Snapchats and all of that other stuff, we are inundated, bombarded with all of these other voices vying for our attention. And the Spirit of God would say the same thing to us. Listen to me. Turn the volume down on all that other stuff in your life. I will direct you. I've got the wisdom you need. I've got the strength you need. I have the capacity to lead you through in peace and in rest. But if your life is consumed by the voices all around you, you will not be able to follow my direction through this unsettled time. In John's day, they were tempted to listen to the voice of Domitian who was threatening them with persecution and he was following through on it. Domitian as an emperor was wildly insecure. He was a narcissist to the highest level and he was taking out his insecurity on the church on the followers of Jesus. He was meeting out his insecurity and his narcissism on the church and they were threatened by him. And so his voice loomed large in their heads. They were threatened by the seductive voice of the empire. And I wanna say this gently, but I wrote it in my notes and I think it's a, a challenge God wants to make to us. They were threatened by the seductive lure of the empire and we are so threatened by the American dream the Canadian dream. Like you can have your cake and eat it too. You can live in affluent wealth and comfort. You can have everything your heart desires and you can still follow Jesus. It won't cost you a thing to follow Jesus. That I wanna tell you is not found in scripture. Scripture tells us it will cost us our very lives. If you're not willing to lay down your life, surrender it and die to yourself and follow me, Jesus said. And we're being challenged with this voice of the American and Canadian dream. Like your faith should cost you nothing and you can get everything you want and still follow me. I'm not saying God has a problem with wealth. He doesn't. He doesn't have a problem with nice things and great things. He's got no problem with it. What he has a problem with is the heart that's directed toward those. And we've been captured by the American dream in our day. This idea that we can have it all. That the goal of our life is a, a really fat retirement bank account 
and rest, taking it easy and playing golf three times a week. Again, Jesus is not, he's not upset about golfing. <laughs> I don't know, that might even make Jesus angry. Golfing makes me so angry, but... <laughs> That's why he probably doesn't play. He just doesn't want to sin that way. <laughs> anyway, those things are not the issue. Your boats are not the issue. Your cottages aren't the issue. Your, your nice things aren't the issue. It's your heart that's directed toward them. And the voice of consumption and security and comfort that drowns out the voice of God. And the people that John was writing to had the same struggles. Here's the voice that speaks to us. You can follow Jesus and the idols of your time. You can follow Jesus and worship celebrity. You can follow Jesus and consume yourself in pleasure. You can follow Jesus and follow every principle of Hollywood or of culture, of government, of higher education, whatever it is. That's the challenge. Jesus is saying, I am speaking. Are you listening to me? I think what he's saying to John is you're filled with fear and anxiety about the future because you're not looking at me. And because you're not looking at me, you're not listening to my direction. We are in a totally unsettled time. Maybe we'll unpack this more, but I really believe we are in this in-between moment. We are exiting what scholars call the American century in our Western context. We're exiting this epoch in time and we're not, we're not toward where we're going to be. We're in this, what they call a gray zone and it's disorienting and unsettled and we have remnants of these two time periods that are, that are wreaking havoc and vying for our attention in our lives. We're in the middle of this. And what John is saying to these early Christians who lived in a similar space, Jesus came and he, he unseated the authority of Rome. Jesus came and said, I'm bringing a new kingdom to this earth. And they lived in the tension, this unsettled, disorienting time. And Jesus is saying, you're filled with anxiety and fear in your life today because you're not looking at me and you're not listening to my voice. We will be captured in our lives by the pervading anxiousness of the world around us if we're not focused on Jesus. And my struggle has been, and maybe it's yours too, even as it relates to the book of Revelation, we spend way more time reading someone else's interpretation and opinion of it than actually directly reading it for ourselves, going to our prayer closet and saying, Jesus, I need to fix my attention on you. We spend way more time watching YouTube sermons on prophecies about you know, Russia and China and uh, the oil prices and all of this stuff. We spend all of our time consuming that, but no time actually just in the presence of Jesus himself. And one of the things I wanna call you to, to challenge you with in this series is to, at least for a season, put down the books Quiet the voices and say, Jesus, I want to see you in the middle of this. There are great men and women of God that you listen to and watch every week. That's amazing. But they cannot replace 
the direct presence of Jesus and his voice in your life. You won't get that from me either. What you get from me at best is a secondhand experience that I've had encounter with Jesus. That is not going to sustain you. You can't live spiritually off of the fruit that I'm cultivating in my life. And you can't do it from your, your most favorite Bible teachers, preachers, worship leaders, whatever. You have to cultivate that yourself. We become afraid because we're looking in the wrong direction. We're looking to culture. We're looking to our finances. We're looking to political solutions. We're looking to comfort. But Jesus says, not only does he speak, but his voice, it comes from the middle. Jesus is saying here to John, I'm in the middle of all things. I'm in the middle of everything. I want to invite Ken to come up and I have a few questions for us as we sort of settle things down here. You know, if you are a follower of Jesus, you may feel like more and more you're marginalized. More and more followers of Jesus are feeling marginalized. We, we have no voice in government. We have no voice in uh, culture. We have no voice in media. We have no voice really anywhere. Today, many of us feel marginalized. Like we're not on the inside anymore, we're on the outside looking in, trying to recapture that place, that feeling of being in the center and in the middle. Daryl Johnson, a pastor in Vancouver who wrote one of the best commentaries on Revelation I've ever read, said this. He said, the crisis we're facing, and maybe you're feeling this in your whole life, the crisis we're facing is not that we are marginalized, it's that we feel marginalized. See, what Jesus gives us is a counter image. And what Jesus says here is, I'm not on the margins, I'm the middle. I'm the center. It's not Apple and Microsoft and Google that are in the center, I'm in the center. It's not Netflix and Prime and Disney that are in the center. I'm in the center. It's not Ottawa or Washington or Beijing that are in the center. I'm in the center. It's not Moscow or Ukraine that are in the center. I am in the center. Our issue is not that we are marginalized, it's we feel marginalized. Why? Because we spend so much of our life living to meet the needs and the requirements of the margin. Our whole Christian walk is framed by the values and expectations of the margin. What we want more than anything is cultural acceptance. Like I wanna be, I wanna be favored by my culture. 
What I want more than anything is a government that acts and believes the way that I do and then I'll feel safe. But what Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter who's on the seat as prime minister or president, I'm in the center. It doesn't matter what's happening on a government or sociological level. It doesn't matter what's happening with human sexuality. And it doesn't matter what's happening in higher education in the university system. I'm the center of it. And we feel marginalized because the whole basis of our life is evaluated on the principles and values of the margin. We've bought into it even as the church. We've bought into the the value of success and the value of prosperity and the value of wealth. There's nothing wrong with those things, but they've captured our hearts. We're evaluating our lives and our identity and our value and our worth, not by the metrics of Jesus who is the center, but by all of the things that sit on the margins. And Jesus is saying to John and he's saying to us, anything that contrasts with me is on the margin. And if you're in me, you're in the center. The problem is we've built our lives around Christianese culture that actually values the things of our world around us more than it values the voice of our King who sits at the center. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm not saying that to judge you. I've lived that as well. My, I've lived that. But we are not going to walk in peace through this turbulent water if we're evaluating our lives based on the things that lie on the margins. Jesus is saying, look at me. And then he's saying, listen to me. Stop evaluating your life based on what you see online, based on the best, your favorite social influencer. Stop evaluating your life based on trying to get ahead and and party with the Joneses. Stop evaluating your life based on these metrics. They aren't the center. I am the center. Jesus doesn't call us to make him or his gospel relevant to the margins. Do you know what the hope of those who live in the margins is? It's repentance. It's turning around and directing their life toward Jesus at the center. I wanna leave you with this thought. This was from Daryl as well. The early church, the people that John is writing to, they were used to win Rome but God did it through them and they had no political power or cultural favor. I wanna say that again. God used the early church to win Rome with no political power and no cultural favor. Why? Because they were people who were looking at Jesus and listening to his voice. Their life was defined by him. It was led by him. It was rooted in him. Would I prefer to have a government in place that held the values I do? Sure, but do I need it? No. Because I'm in the center. 
I don't need to walk with anxiety and fear. I don't need for things to happen around me to make me feel better because the truth of the matter is that I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. I am in the center. And it doesn't matter who's prime minister. It doesn't matter who's leading which Fortune 500 companies or what tech companies. It doesn't matter if Elon buys Twitter or not. That makes no difference because I am with the one who is Lord over it all. And because he isn't anxious, I don't need to be either. Jesus has not had a worried, anxious day in his life and today isn't gonna be the first. The question is, where are you looking and what are you listening to? We're discouraged today because we're disoriented. Everything is shifting and changing. The cultures and institutions we put trust in are crumbling and eroding. And the task at hand isn't to build them up and fortify them, it's to direct our attention away from them and onto the presence of Jesus. We're discouraged because we're disoriented and we're disoriented because we're distracted. Jesus is inviting you back into that middle place that's led by him, it's strengthened by him, it's fueled by him, it's pervaded by his presence in your marriage, in your workplace, as you look at what's happening. It doesn't matter if Doug gets elected or not or whoever's running, it doesn't matter. And if God has called you to be a part of, you know, government and political purposes, amazing. That's great. But our life isn't shaped on what happens in the world. It's shaped by the one who holds it in the palm of his hand. I want to just invite you to close your eyes as we end here. I wrote down here the root of our anxiety is found in our disconnection from God and the voice of Jesus. Just as your eyes are closed, I want you just to, just, just really quietly, just so that you can hear just yourself, I want you to just say, Jesus, I'm here. And I want to see you and hear you. root of our anxiety is found in our disconnection from God and the voice of Jesus. Just as your eyes are closed, I just want to invite you to say, Jesus, what, what voices are drowning yours out in my life? Where am I looking? Where is my attention right now? And Jesus, I want you to ask him this. If it's not on you, then where is it? Help me see. I'm just gonna ask even in this moment, Holy Spirit, that you would just come and bring revelation, that you would 
just leverage even our mind and our imagination for your purposes. I want you just to, in this moment, just to be really honest with Jesus and just say, Jesus, these are the things that are, that are weighing me down, that are freaking me out, that are stressing me out. Jesus, these are the things that are dominating my attention and my thought life. These are the things that are provoking fear in me. I want you just to name them quietly before him. And if you can, while you're with Jesus, I just in your imagination, I want you to open your eyes and I want you to see Jesus. Because the Jesus that John saw his face was shining like the sun. Jesus is not worried. He's not anxious. He's not nervous. He's got the wisdom you need. He's got the strength you need. He's got the authority that you need. And he's got the direction that you need to lead you through. So Jesus, I just ask in this moment that you would make that reality real to each one of us. That you are in the center of every area of our life. That you are in the middle of our families and our workplaces. You're in the middle of our suffering. You're in the middle of our pain. You're in the middle of our hurt. You're in the middle of our conflicts. You're in the middle of all of it. You're in the middle of our financial need. You're in the middle of every area of our life. You're in the middle of our future decisions. You're in the middle of that scary next step. And you're not nervous. You're at rest. I just ask Spirit of God that you would pervade this place with your peace and your rest, your shalom. That you would teach us to bring our whole life under the Lordship and leadership of Jesus. That you would cultivate in us the peace and the rest and the authority of Jesus in a broken and unsettled world. So in Jesus' name, we just command every assignment of anxiety and fear that Jesus wants to reveal to us to come into the light right now. Every attack, every scheme or plan of the enemy of God to rob us of joy and peace, I just command to come into the light right now and to be subject to the Lordship of Jesus. following Jesus, his first invitation to you is follow me. We can help you with that. If you are following Jesus, his next invitation is look at me and listen 
to my voice. Reorient your life around me and I will lead you. Spirit, we give ourselves to you. We love you. Amen. Okay, so it's one thing for us to say we need to look at and listen to Jesus in our life. It's a whole other thing to figure out how to practically do that. So I want to leave you with just a couple of practical things that you can begin applying in your life. Here at Mountain Park, we sort of organized our whole church and our whole sort of spiritual formation around these things. There's three sort of distinctive uh, realities that at least I see in the life of Jesus. Number one, he brought himself under scripture, under the authority of scripture. He allowed his life to be shaped by scripture. Number two, Jesus uh, intentionally engaged in spiritual rhythms or practices. Some people call them holy habits, whatever you want to call them. Jesus intentionally engaged in activities that brought him near to his Father. He intentionally um, uh, made room for and prioritized rhythms in his life that would give him access to his Father. And number three, Jesus was totally dependent and reliant on the Holy Spirit's gifting and power. Another way to say that is he was totally faithful and obedient to follow through with what he was hearing from the Father. So how do we kind of integrate these things into our life? If we want to look at, um, turn our, our, our gaze at Jesus, focus our attention on him, look at him and listen to him. Number one, we need to uh, bring our lives under scripture. We need to invest time in reading, studying and meditating on scripture, allowing scripture to be the thing that defines our life. Number two, we need to engage in spiritual practices. If you want to go back, you could listen to our, we did a whole series earlier this uh, winter and spring called Counterformed on some of these specific practices. If we want to uh, see and hear Jesus in the midst of the confusion all around us, in the midst of the unsettling time we're in, the discouraging time we're in, the disorienting time we're in, and we need to actually invest intentional time in spiritual practices that posture us, that bring us near uh, to the heart of God, that, that actually engage us with the presence of God in our life. And so you can learn more about that if you're not sure what spiritual practices are connected with that series. And number three, we need to begin to intentionally rely on the Holy Spirit's gifting and power in our life, which means we need to begin to walk uh, in obedience to what we sense God calling us to do in our life. So we can't just propositionally say, I agree with you, Jesus, that you're Lord of my life and that you're the way the truth in the life, we need to put that into practice. And like we say here often, and we copy this from Dallas Willard, um, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So we're not talking about earning 
uh, God's favor. We're not talking about earning salvation. We're talking about engaging in a life of faith. That requires us to actually um, actively respond to what we sense God challenging us to do, convicting us to do, and step out into those places where we are walking in obedience and fully relying on the Holy Spirit's power and gifting in our life. This is how Jesus himself kept his Father at the center of everything he did. These are three simple but but hard things for us to live into practical ways for us to to uh, steward the presence of God to better see and hear what Jesus is doing to be focused on him in the midst of this disorienting unsettled and discouraging time I hope that helps I hope you have a great week we'll see you for week three next week